and welcome to Matt Chat, an irregular podcast where I invite a member of the Empire community to come on the channel and chat to me, Matt Pennington, about some aspect of LARP that we're both interested in. This week I'm chatting to Tony Porteous, and we'll start by diving right in with me answering a question Tony asked about the GNS model of role-playing. Hmm, that is an interesting question. A couple of things. One, I just my main goal is actually to have some interesting conversations with people about LARP. Uh, that is genuinely my main goal. A conversation I was having with David Proctor, who was actually set up to come over tomorrow and we're going to record one. And him and Amy were suggesting we should discuss the differences between continental LARPs and Empire in terms of consequences and, and effectively narrative versus gamist consequences. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that there was a three-point article, which was a narrative gamist and simulationist or something like that. Oh, yeah, the GNS model. It's an awful model. I hate it. I remember you saying that before, and yeah. Mm. Like all models, it, it, anytime you take a spectrum, a wide spectrum, and split it up into some chunks, it, you gain some degree of insight, and you also make some brutal consequences. And the question is over always whether the consequences are you know the compromises are worth the insight and sometimes they are and sometimes they're not i I think the gns model is interesting to a point and you kind of it's interesting to apply that analysis and then move on but when it was big and it was everywhere people wanted to apply gns to everything and then they have the whole conversation in terms of that analysis and it's like "Mm, yeah we could do that or we could try and dig a bit deeper into what's really going on here um, I think it's really easy to be quite superficial. Uh, once you start, you know, slicing things that way, um, it's like music. You could take music and go, well, I'm going to divide music into classical, pop, and alternative. Indie, of course. Yeah, all music fits into one of those three categories. So that's really all we need to say about it. Once you classify it into one of those three, that you, why would you need to know anything more about it? Now, anyone would say, that's a pretty thin analysis of music. Um, where does R&B sit? Nonetheless, if something gets um, big, if something gets talked about a lot, it's because it's scratching an itch. And I think um, the the model itself was at a point where people were seeing a lot of problems and feeling a lot of things weren't working right, but couldn't articulate it at all. And then I think they just got excited when they came across something that provided a lens through which you could just split this problem in half. Yeah, I don't disagree. It filled a need to have terminology to be able to divide things up into concepts we could all agree on. We could go, well, this game is gamist, this game is narrativist, I like simulationist games, I like whatever games. I think it it gave us a language which hadn't been there previously, and that's why it was so glommed onto. People grabbed it because, like, oh, I mean, what did we divide games into before that? Not a lot, really. I keep on coming back to is the the need to build a lexicon. I mean, I sort of deal with that on a day-to-day basis when trying to describe what we're building. Yes. But yes, that was not the subject of today's discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's not. We might leave that in as a little bonus. Matt, Matt and Tony yeah, discuss the GNS model. So hi, welcome back to the channel. I'm with Tony Porteous today. And in fact, I'll let Tony introduce himself and tell him tell everyone what we're going to talk about. Oh, my name is Tony Porteous. Um, I am a nerd who works in immersive theatre and games design. Um, I am a volunteer for Profound Decisions. I am a writer, programmer, designer, technician, all sorts of stuff that are circling the LARP sphere. 
And yeah, we're here today, I believe, to talk about volunteer versus paid crew. I'm really keen to talk about this. It's, it's a hobby horse of mine. The issue came up recently when I was at the conference that uh, John Shockley and Simon Brind organised in Birmingham. And, and people were discussing then the idea, you know, and the conflicts and the issues and paid crew. The and Camelot that's... conference. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Why did you pitch this? What was your thinking? Before I well, get on my hobby horse. No, absolutely. Well, um, I'm coming at this as someone who is a volunteer crew and has put mm. my heart and soul into a number of different projects over the years. In doing so and encountering a lot of opinions on the internet, particularly around um, paying for art and that whole idea of paying an exposure and the ridiculousness of it, mm. and then extending that out to think in terms of, well, what am I doing here? Is this a correct model? Is, what's um, Am I being uh, remunerated fairly for my time or am I enabling bad behavior? Um, I mean, you hear an awful lot of stuff, people talking an awful lot of different ways about this, and so it's interesting. Um, in addition to that, um, I work now in events and in design, and while I can't go into too many details of that, um, it's interesting to see both the professional side and what I do for a day job, and how we work with actors and artists for that, versus what I then go away and do in my spare time for free. Yes, I can imagine. I think I sh- we should probably say that um, we're going to try and focus more on the on on LRP and probably Empire and PD are, are good examples we should talk about rather than your workplace. Although I suspect that's a fascinating conversation in and of itself. I think it's interesting where you start from that that argument about the exposure dollars, which is the classic element I think that that comes in whenever people are effectively trying to exploit people. And let's let's be let's be clear about it that's what it is you've got an artist who's either their drawings or pictures or paintings or classic i think is photography or it's productional artist it's people who create websites or you know i think you can go is there a difference i don't know i'm not an artist so i'm going to watch my language carefully there but i think there is a difference between being a photographer and being a website designer there seems to be one to me i don't want to break that down but effectively You've then got a whole group of people who are in my position where we're running companies, uh, commercial companies, who want the output of that person's work. We don't want to pay for it either because we're cheap or because we don't have the money or because we don't have the money that it's worth. And so basically the, the, the way to try and convince the usually starving artist to part with their work for free is to offer them exposure dollars. In other words, you'll get lots of exposure out of the fact that you're my, I will promote your art as part of the promotion that I'm doing. That's a reasonable summary, yeah. I think I can add a, another lens on that as well, which is before I got where I am now, I spent about eight years working in the video games industry. Ooh. And I'm sure a fair few people are aware of crunch culture. Um, EA Spouse is a famous name in that of large games companies that ask for a lot of unpaid overtime in order to get the project out the door. Um, And I've been part and parcel of that for a fair while, for better or worse. Um, As a worker, a technician, a creative in that space, 
because it's art that you're doing, it's not just banking software or a contractual work. You care about what you're making. And yep. an awful lot of the product is leveraged on the back of that care. And in some cases, I've got the impression that it's just the nature of the business, that the margins are tight and you've got to work super hard to get your video game out the door. Um, in some cases, though, I've got the impression that it's a little bit more calculated. And when they're planning the the milestones, they go, okay, people will work for two months with maybe four weeks of crunch in there, and that should just get us to the point, which is a little bit more despicable. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about EA, because, and, and what you're describing is is exactly mirrors the, the tiny bit that I've, you know, read about, about the software industry, that in essence, uh, computer gaming is, is very poorly paid, uh, certainly in terms of per hours at certain levels, particularly entry levels and medium levels, because the people doing it love what they're doing. And effectively, the companies at some level are exploiting that. And I think... You know, it's easy to imagine some small indie game studio that's producing uh, a tiny little game, a boutique game that isn't going to sell millions and millions or whatever. Then you, you look at that and you think, well, yeah, I can understand. They've basically got to ask everybody to put their shoulder to the to the wheel to try and get this game out the door, keep the you know the, the, the thing running. And then you look at Electronic Arts, who I think make the Star Wars franchise games. And if anybody isn't aware of the economics of computer games, computer games make substantially more money than films do. That milestone was passed uh, a, a generation ago. The computer software, the leisure software industry is substantially bigger than the entire movie industry. So you think about how much money there is in blockbuster movies, there is more money in computer games than there is in blockbuster movies. So if Electronic Arts, who are pretty much at the top, are paying people in exposure dollars, that's a little bit like Disney paying uh, actors in Star Wars in exposure dollars. And I, I don't know whether that happens. I, I would have to speak to some of my friends, but I suspect it does not. Mm, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean... I don't want to talk when I am ignorant of a subject. Oh, don't let that hold you back. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I keep on coming back to with a lot of things is the game theory of a situation. It is certainly the case that whilst I could talk about um, certain video game companies and crunch culture and say it's despicable, I can also look at it and go, well, it's also inevitable. I mean, you've got... 2,000 people who all really, really, really want to make video games. And you as an employer, it's almost impossible not to start paring that down and go, well, this person will accept a salary of 1,800. This person will accept a salary of 1,600. Do I have anyone who wants to work for cheaper? Do I have anyone who wants to work more overtime for free? And you know that, particularly at the early stages of it, because it's got that little bit of a rock star edge to it, um, People are so desperate to work that they will undervalue the skill that they are providing. And yes. this kind of leads you back towards um, where you a lot of the articles about exposure dollars come in, which is that, oh no, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. This leads back to another aspect of the online debate, which is hobbyists who create art for free because they really want to devalue the work of paid artists, meaning that no one can afford to be a paid artist. And yep. following that downward slope, you end up back squarely in the LARP camp, where everyone is a volunteer, 
everyone is doing it for free, and there is an argument there that, as a consequence, um, we are preventing professional LARP companies from establishing themselves and making a living doing it. Effectively, we're <laughs> damning ourselves. That's uh, really fascinating. It's not where I'd expected this conversation to circle back. But but you're you're not wrong. And and again, to go back to the Camelot thing, uh, Rachel Thomas gave a brilliant talk about, and it was really I, I don't know. Maybe it was it was the talk I was most interested in. It was the talk I went there to see. But it was about the economics of LARP, and it was about you know why why can't we why can't we pay more LARP producers. Uh, to make LARP, I, I, I'm, 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 you had to see the talk. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinning it down there, and, and she's got a blog, and, and there's a lot of material there. And it's worth reading. But in did essence, have a, a skim of this actually. Yeah, I've heard right. about the conference, but I was not there myself. But it's exactly your point that effectively, by because the hobby creates a lot of LARP for very, very little money, and because we're all giving our, not we're all, <laughs> be careful there. Ninety nine percent of us are giving our time for free. We have uh, underpriced, vastly underpriced LARP as an activity, uh, and we have made it very, very, very difficult for then people who go, you know what, I really love producing LARP games, I really want to produce LARP games for a living, and I can't. That analysis is not, I don't think it captures, and clearly it doesn't capture the entirety because I make my living selling LARP, and we can come back to that, and I'm sure we will. But it, it does capture a large part of LARP, and, and it does. It's not factually in, on, in and of itself incorrect. Without a doubt, we are lowering the price of LARP, lowering the costs, and lowering uh, what it can sustain and support by by through volunteering. And equally, by raising the expectations, because you can do an awful lot more for free. Um, if someone tried to do this professionally, then they would look at how many hours they could professionally put into it and not be able to bring something up to the standard of what that company over there are doing with unpaid volunteers. Yes, LARP is particularly perverse. Let's, let's say you start to go, okay, well, let's break this down and, and look at it then. You know, how would it work if it was purely commercial? And then the question is, well, who's getting paid? What do we mean by commercial? Profound Decisions tagline is, you know, professional live role playing. And actually what we really mean by that is commercial live role playing. This is, you know, we're trying to be really, really clear and honest as we could that people were getting paid for their time to produce those games. But in mm. case anyone doesn't understand, we are 350 volunteers at the events and they are not getting paid. And we couldn't work it. If we were paying those people for their time, we simply could not make uh, an Empire game. Not in a million years. Couldn't be done. You know, the question then is, well, who should get paid, you know, and, and how should that work? And, and that isn't an easy question and it doesn't have easy answers, I don't think. To come in from my stance, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm playing a little bit devil's advocate here and exploring all over the ideas. Um, but certainly when I've heard the argument that everyone, there should be no volunteers in LARP, it's honestly laughable having looked at the realities of making professional theatrical things and what it costs per hour to do things and i believe the articles in questions and the talk demonstrated to some strong degree that that same avenue but at the same time it doesn't preclude the debate and it's kind of a fun subject anyway is that what you would say your stance is because we we never circled back to what your personal stance is on the subject I said I had a hobby horse, and I think I'll come to that later as we get get into this. I, I've not seen a model 
of live role-playing that I think produces commercial returns at the kind of lot that Rachel Thomas, the kind of size that Rachel Thomas runs LARP. So she seems to run games at the 30 to 50 person size. And I haven't seen any model of any kind that convinced me that that was commercially viable. The economics are completely different for the kind of life role-playing that we run as Profound Decisions, where you have over 2,000 people purchasing a ticket. Economics are totally different there. So I think, so the first point is you're comparing um, chalk and cheese. I don't think there's any, I haven't seen any model of any LARP yet where where it doesn't include a significant number of volunteers as part of the machinery that makes it work. You know, small games do that, uh, commercial games, fest games, and I think all three of the big fest games are are commercial to a degree in this country. CP, LT, and and PD all make profits and pay wages of some people and pay, you know, whatever. They certainly charge a ticket price to get through the door. You do. But but all of them use volunteers. And, And actually... You only need to stop and think that Glastonbury, which is one of the biggest music festivals in this country, which I think sells, I think, a hundred and, oh, I don't know, 170,000 tickets. Why do I think it's that figure? I don't know. I, I now want to go and Google size of Glastonbury. Size of Glastonbury. Uh, 900 acres. No, no. How many people? How many people go to Glastonbury? 200,000 people attend Glastonbury. So they're selling something like 170,000 tickets, if not more. Uh, those tickets are expensive. It turns over, I think, you know, a hundred million a year, or whatever. And yet, the festival runs on huge numbers of volunteers. And then the obvious question is: Well, how can a structure that's so big and so profitable and so huge be basically contingent on running on volunteers? I've volunteered at some music festivals as well, and it's very interesting to see the difference in culture at those things. Oh, go on. I'd be, you'd be fascinated. Give us an example. Uh, well, first of all, crime's a thing, um, as in there's definitely a case where you're on the lookout for tent slashers and people who are there simply to sell drugs or simply to steal things and so on and so forth. Um, and I think just because of an order of magnitude thing or a, a common knowledge thing, there's certainly a sense of you can't trust your volunteers in the same way that you tend to trust all volunteers at a LARP festival. In addition to that, the amount of passion that the average volunteer tends to have for the festival is very different. Um, I was bumping into people who are, after a fashion, professional music volunteers, as in they go from festival to festival to festival to get fed to do what they do, and they've not got a particular investment in this, this place. It's just how they live their life rather than how they run their hobby. Also, in terms of the size of things, like I can come up to profound decisions. I can park my car, I can get out and I can be on the site. Whereas wherever I've gone to crew a music festival, I'm walking for 15 minutes before I've even got close. And that's as a volunteer for the thing. I mean, I think that's one of the first things that's, you know, just while we're digging into this as an essential problem, that's really important to appreciate is that paying people is not straightforward. So first of all, let's take a look at profound decisions example. Let's say, okay, we've got 350 volunteers, uh, but actually that's only the number we've got at any given event. We've probably got somewhere in the region of five to 600 volunteers over the year. 
because it's not the same. Maybe let's call it 500. It's not the same people at every event. And some people are coming to their first one and so on and so forth. Is it worth breaking those volunteers down into, into groups at all? To uh, yeah. just give an idea of what those volunteers yeah, yeah, are no. doing. So there's there's 80 in the skirmish team. So that's the team that go out and do the, the skirmishes and the battles. There is about 20 in the NPC team and then about another 20 people in the running the plot and the costume and the room. Uh, so what we're up to, we're up to 120. There's about 50 full-time NPCs on the field. You're up to about 170. There's about 40 Red Hats who put the event up and down. That's 210. 10 security, 220. 20 in guard, 240. I'm still a way off. But you, you, oh, 10, 20 referees, 260. Uh, 10 weapon checkers, 270. 20 on the gate, 290. 20 cleaning the toilets, 310. 10 sparkies. 320. I, I'm, I'm trying to rack my brains and run through every department, and I, I've undoubtedly missed two or three who are now... Uh, Do we count things like camp planners? Yeah, 10 camp planners, 330. At 20 now, there's two per camp, is that the, the last I heard of it? Mm, there's two in some, one in some. I mean, we're just, you know, we're just plucking numbers out of the air with a norm. Yeah, because what's interesting is it's there's sort of like the very dedicated people at the top there the ones who are full-time involved but then there are a lot of people who are sort of volunteerish um I'm, where do the free refrains sit on this are they full-time npcs or are they full-time npcs yeah um full backstage access involved in plot discussions feeding plot back and forth with the plot team through the event getting direction going back out yeah no they're full-time they're part of my 50 field npcs Fair enough yeah I mean, it, it feels like with some things like camp planners that they, they're sort of somewhere between a player and crew, as it were. They do enough that they get classed as volunteers and get a free ticket, but they're not as full-time as some of the other people involved. Is that a fair thing to say? That's fair, but, but that analysis would be true of every two different roles that you could put, put together. You know, mm -hmm. Does an NPC who turns up on Friday and works flat out from friday to sunday do the same amount of work as a member of the plot team who turns up a day before and stays half the day afterwards working on the plot does a red, red cat who turns up two days before and then is free to do whatever they want for the actual event yeah but then stays a day and a half afterwards putting it all down i i think you can you've got to be very careful you can easily tie yourself into knots comparing the work one one volunteer does with another and i it, I try to avoid that really because, but you've got to put a benchmark. You've got to go, well, that's enough to, to qualify you as a member of crew. You know, we'll give you a, a crew uh, ticket, give you meals and so forth. Yeah. So hey, I forgot right. why you the can very was. easily tie in knots here. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, we were talking 500 to 600 volunteers. Let's, so let's say there's 500 different faces. Now let's imagine that you're going to pay all of those people for their time and you go, okay, fine. Well, obviously that will cost, it's not only that much money. Um, it might be a hundred thousand pounds, maybe it's two hundred thousand pounds. I don't know, but it's uh, you, you, what, what are you talking? Let's okay, let's let's try and bench, let's try and work it out. 350, 740, so let's call it 1500 volunteers over the year. And and they're let's say they're volunteering for four days each, so that's six thousand days. Hmm. So that's how many, how many working years is six thousand days? The calculator. 300 working days in a year i don't know there's a lot that. more in mind yeah easy maths easy maths so six thousand. so that's 20 years 
that you're going to pay for at let's mm. say a salary of 20 grand Ooh, so that's four hundred thousand. So I was I was out by a, a kind of an order of, of a magnitude of two. So you're looking at four hundred thousand. So essentially, if PD doubled the ticket price to uh, I don't know one hundred and fifty quid, we mm -hmm. or yeah, okay. So first of all, we go yeah, let's just double the ticket price and play the volunteers. Well, stop. Obviously, our ticket price includes the AT. And there's quite a lot of tax involved in playing people's wages. So actually, to make enough money to pay all those wages, you'd probably have to close to triple the ticket price just to make the extra 400000 that you would need to pay the VAT on the ticket price, to pay the tax on the wages. So Can I jump in with some other stuff there? Um, mm -hmm. Do you have your hiring and dismissals routine in place for these people who are no longer volunteers? I mean, if you're hiring people, then you've got to demonstrate that you're hiring people fairly, right? You do. And obviously dismissing them becomes a pretty serious issue at the point where, although in theory, you could probably get around those problems because I, I think you would argue that they, you would probably do it as subcontracting, I suspect. You would argue that these people are not full-time employees of your company and, and do other jobs as well. Subcontracting, do they need to be their own financial entities? Well... Mm -hmm. you've hit a nail on the head there. I look at some of my volunteers and say, yeah, I'm going to pay you. And they're like, mm, you're going to give me £200 to turn up for this weekend. And somehow I've now got to fill in all the tax uh, forms and everything else. You demonstrated that you're giving them their fair allocation of pension. Uh, yes, pensions. I mean, basically the administration alone would be immense. It would be the kind of administration that you would need for a company that employed 500 people. You would need a full-time full HR department, a minimum of one HR manager, and probably two people working for them full-time. So you've got to that's add... another 100K, definitely. That's another 100K just to do the admin paying those volunteers, many of whom will not want paying because they come from highly waged jobs. Not all, not all. Many of them have been really glad to get 200 pounds, but many of them will be like, yeah, that just messes my life up. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, I came here because I wanted to be part of the great LARPA then. I hadn't come here for 150 quid or whatever it was you were going to pay me. Now I've got to fill in a self-assessment tax return. Yeah, you bastard. <laughs> or I've got to just fiddle my tax, neither of which, you know, some of our people want to do. So mm. the cost, as we demonstrated, the cost would be huge. You'd have to look at a ticket price way north of the £150, probably closer to £180. Now, there are counter arguments, which is that we are highly staffed. Would you have 80 skirmish crew? Well, maybe you wouldn't. You know, if, if you were paying all of your staff, all of your crew, you would you'd find ways to cut it back. But it illustrates the issue. Effectively, we'd be making all sorts of compromises and having to charge two or three times the ticket price just to stay with standstill. Hmm. So, yeah, it would be difficult. So, you know, there's no model I know of that produces LARP with a fully paid um, team. I don't know of any model, and I, yeah, I've never seen anyone make that work, and I've never actually seen anyone even try. I once saw a guy on the internet say he was going to do it. He was like, "This is an outrage. I'm going to set up an LRP, a fest LRP, and I'm going to pay everyone involved for their time." Yeah, he did not manage to make that work. You may have heard about that chap, and uh, yes, I don't know if I could talk about that right now.
No, I, I, and it's not to call him, I, but I remember looking at it thinking, I think you have underestimated both the costs and the complexities of employing a hundred people for four weeks a year or whatever you're going to attempt to do. Very, very difficult. I've seen some things operating on a much smaller scale that get very close to a LARPy sort of feel. Um, I know there's a a company in London called Colab who are doing some very immersive role-play heavy things, which I look at and go, yeah, that's scratching my LARP pitch for going along to that. And that's just about fiscal model for 18 people to turn up at a time. But even then, you get two hours of entertainment for that not a weekend-long experience. (laughs) Yeah. And that, I think, is really interesting. When you look at some of those commercial models for semi-LARPs, like the Mask of the Red Death, the interactive theatre stuff, any of that, yes, you can put together a model where it is everyone involved is going to get paid, but the costs are significantly higher. And again, we come back to the fact that that live role-playing is actually an astonishingly cheap hobby. I remember going to a friend's uh stag do and we had an half an hour of go-kart racing and it was 50 quid for half an hour and all we did was pot around a a figure of eight track for half an hour in a tiny little go-kart burning i don't know a pound's worth of diesel and i just thought it is fascinating to compare the 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 value proposition of half an hour of go-karting with a weekend's live role-playing you just you get so much for your money because basically so much of what is happening is is being created by people who are doing it for the love. Mm. And certainly that comes back to an interesting point of what might happen with paid crew versus volunteer crew, as in, do you lose that love as a, mm. as a result of that? I mean, I've, I probably jumped a little too quickly to the heart of that question, but certainly I've there is a thing called the babysitter fallacy, which was uh, where... Have you heard this one before? I'm sure you must have done. Is this the Israeli kindergartens where... That they, would be the kipper, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And very, very, very relevant, I think, to, to, to this this subject. Do you, do you want to tell the story? Because I think sure. many of our podcast listeners won't know. Sure. So um, this was something I learned through a social psychology course, talking about a kindergarten where they're having issues where the parents were not turning up on time to pick up their kids. And obviously it's hard work to look after the kids longer than is needed. And they were asking the parents to turn up on time and still there would be people who would turn up late. So they instigated a new policy where they sent out to all the parents to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fine people 10 pounds or the equivalent thereof, for turning up late to pick up their kids. Um, Before this point, there was no fine at all, but they found that as a consequence, people were turning up even later, and they were more willing to turn up late, because now the price tag on this was £10, whereas before the price tag was, I am doing a socially unacceptable thing. Effectively, by putting a price tag on it, they had devalued what they were doing. Um, And this comes down to a concept of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, with money being a very extrinsic thing and and social good and being part of a community being something that's very intrinsically motivated. I mean, 
if you told me that I would be red capping for minimum wage salary and I'm out there in the middle of a thunderstorm trying to keep a tent upright, I would probably be less keen to keep holding on to that tent whilst freezing cold rainwater is dribbling down my arm than if I was told that I was doing it because something I love cannot happen unless I make this do. Yeah, that study, by the way, is really well, you know, you can Google it. It's very easy. Just Google Israeli kindergarten experiment. It, It and what's really interesting is they they did lots of research on it and then they tried taking the fine away again at the end and what didn't happen was people didn't go back to the original behavior they stayed at the higher rates of late coming and the suggestion is that having turned a social faux pas into a financial cost you'd they'd made people think of the, the the what they were doing in purely transactional terms they'd shifted their thinking into this is a transaction i turn up late i pay you 10 pounds for the luxury of not having to collect my kid at three o'clock and being able to pick them up at five o'clock and having done that they could not easily get back to the situation where everyone understood that this was not acceptable and you shouldn't do it the norms the way people thought about it had been permanently changed or at least semi-permanently changed and you're not wrong uh people would not work as hard for money as they work for profound decisions. And I don't believe that's a function of the amount of money either. And I remember once, it's very, very funny, many, many years ago, I was I was trying to become an investment banker, London. Lord. I finished my PhD and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and be an investment banker. Yeah, you got to laugh. Um, so uh, my uncle, who is very well connected in London, sat me around the dinner table with his next door neighbor who ran the Russia desk for Solomon Smith Barney, which is a big, big, oh. big uh, investment bank or was. They've been merged 60 million times since then. So he's regaling us with these stories of how hard he has to work for his two million pounds a year that he gets from Solomon Smith Barney. And he's explaining to me, like, you do get well paid, but obviously you've got to work really hard for your two million pound a year. And my partner was there and he's describing how much work you have to do. And my partner, I could see my partner chuckling. Uh, and she was clearly kind of not he wasn't paying any attention to her, but she was clearly smiling and laughing a bit. And, and and afterwards, I said, what was the joke? What was funny? And she said, well, yeah, it did sound like quite hard work, but no harder, no longer hours than I work as a teacher. Or, you know, he thought it was hard work. He, Mr. Merchant Banker, thought that these extra hours he was going to have to work after five o'clock after the bank had closed. Wow, that was hard work in his brain. But it, it didn't, you know, from her perspective, it just sounded like an average working day of an average teacher. And what's my point? My point, my anecdote is you could pay people £2 million a year or you could pay them £20,000 a year as a starting teacher. And it doesn't really make any difference to the amount of work they do. It just doesn't. They'll work as hard as they're prepared to work as a human being. If they're an industrious person, they'll work really hard. And if they're a lazy person, they won't. And that, and maybe merchant banking gets rid of the lazy people. I don't know. But fundamentally, anyone who, who's in merchant banking who thinks that they are working really hard to, to earn their £2 million a year, I've got to tell you, you're just kidding yourself. You're not working any more hours than the rest of us. You're just not. So the point is, you can't financially motivate people to go and do a 14-hour stint or a 16-hour stint on a, you know, unless that is literally the structure of the job. But, but, but people aren't doing that 
because you know because of the extra money they're getting they they'll do it in live role playing because they love what they're doing and this is a really big deal to them and they care about it and they want this event to happen and they want to pour their energies into it I, I'm, so my point is people work much harder for profound decisions for free than they work for two million pound a year for a merchant bank i was coming across a similar to say the same thing in a similar way uh i came across uh, a book i'm reading at the moment about influence and the different mm -hmm. tricks at influence and there is an awful lot here. One of the main ones is called reciprocity, which is where if I give you something, you feel obliged to return the favor and you're more likely to do something for me if I give you a free pen or buy you a cup of coffee first than otherwise. And it talks into where this comes from and what's going on here and some of the fascinating qualities about it. And it's a very powerful social force that some might argue is, is instinctive even. Um, but one curious thing is it's transferable, as in, if someone did me a favor, I could reciprocate by doing a favor for anyone from that person's family or social group. And incidentally, anyone from my family or social group would feel obliged to reciprocate and do anything for their social group. And what that leads towards is the idea of a community, where if people feel like they're part of the same social network and they feel like they have this common sense of obligation, then they're going to work for each other. Yeah. To jump back to the babysitter, the uh, the kindergarten story, um, what happened by putting the monetary price tag on it is they completely crippled any sense of social community that they had there. And afterwards, they couldn't get it back. Yeah. Or at least this is my theory anyway. And I, I'm working towards a point with this, which is that in theory, what this means is that what we are as, as LARPers is a, a powerful community of people with that word really meaning something, which means that there's a different set of contractual, not contractual, but a different sense of obligations that you have to a member of your community than you would have to a contracted paid for employee. In some cases you can be both, but if we're talking about volunteer crew, we're talking about a set of social obligations. And one thing I don't know, and I would ask is, what do you feel those social obligations that you have to your crew are? I mean, firstly, I, I'm totally in agreement with you on the fundamental principle. I think putting a live role-playing event on is like the Amish doing a barn raising. No one is getting paid Everybody understands that the barn has to go up. We all come together. We all put the barn up. We glory in the awesome barn that has gone up. And then there's a slap up feed made meal and, and we all eat and we all celebrate and then we all go home. It is its community. It it's primeval. It's tapping into a part of the human psyche that is older than money. I like to think of it as a nerdy burning man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yes, I think you are absolutely 100% on the money, that, that the social contract is crucial. And I think this is really important. This is where we get into the difference between what, what I feel and what I hope is the difference between what Profound Decisions does and Exposure Dollars. So in Exposure Dollars, what you're really doing is you're just trying to cheat someone. You're just trying to get someone's art that you could have paid for for nothing 
you're not giving them anything in return, but you're claiming that you're giving them exposure. You're, you're basically selling them with substandard goods for their high quality thing that they are giving you. Why is, and because there's no community. This isn't one of your artists that you've nurtured for years and who is part of a commune that, that keeps the, the uh, gallery open by creating their art for people to come into. There's no community there. It's just, I want your art. I don't want to pay for it, so I'm going to blag you for it. Why is it different? I think it is different because of community. I think, and, and then you come into that social contract. I have not thought about, I haven't pre-prepared an answer about what, what is profound decisions social contract, but I could I could talk about things that are really important to me. The okay. first one is that crewing must be enjoyable. The goal for me is that crewing is more enjoyable than playing. And I've talked about this. I've lost players. I gave a talk where I said, if you're running a live role-playing event, crewing should be more fun than playing. And that should be your goal of putting your event on. And someone was so outraged that, that they quit and have never come to my game since. Oh, fine. That's a perfectly reasonable position. Uh, but I wasn't going to back down on it when when they, they tackled me about it uh, because I believe it, absolutely believe it. Your first Clarify, is, you're saying that Ikring should be more fun or as fun? More fun. Okay. More fun. I mean, firstly, the idea that it should be as fun is bullshit. As an event organiser, the thing is totally nebulous anyway. You can't measure it. You can't quantify it. So you can't, there's, and it's subject to massive variability. So you've got a completely nebulous quality subject to massive variability, and you're going to aim for it to be exactly equal in a population of 400 people. No, you're not. No, and if you tell yourself you're doing that, you don't understand maths and numbers and people or anything. You can't aim for two massively variable nebulous qualities to be exactly equal. That's not a thing you can aim for. And per profound decisions, we don't. We do not do that. Profound decisions as a company says, our goal is to pick the right crew and then do everything possible to make crewing as enjoyable as possible. We don't need to worry about making playing possible. Our crew will do that. They will make crewing enjoyable. Sorry, not possible. Make, make playing enjoyable. If you pick the right crew and they're doing a good job, they will make playing the game enjoyable. I we, Profound decisions regard that as the, play, as the, the job of our crew to make playing the game enjoyable. Our job as a company is to make crewing the game enjoyable, and that is our number one focus. More important, super to cool us, thing to hear. Yeah, well, so you can't aim. It's not that we we don't want aim for playing to be enjoyable too. We do, but the focus is crewing, uh, and so that's the first part of the social contract for me. What's other parts? I guess another part is is pay it around. Uh, periodically, you know, members of my uh, team will come to me. Oh, okay, good example. We're going to send out a mail shot next week. Not next week, in January. We're going to send out 5,000 flyers to people going, hey, 2020, PD, Empire, blah, 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 blah. When you open your flyers inside, when you open your mail shot from Profound Decisions, which incidentally costs us two or 3,000 pounds, probably more by the time you printed it and stuffed it, just the stamps, it's not a cheap thing you'll find some flyers for other games. I don't know how many at this point, but there'll be one or two other games. And if you've ever asked yourself, what does PD charge for those flyers to be in that, that mail shot? The answer is nothing. We've, we've never charged 
a hobby-based organization to put their flyers in our mail shop. We've always, and often we've printed the stuff for them for free. We just, we're just like, yeah, we'll do that. We have printers. Don't worry about it. Um, why? Because we're a community and profound decisions absolutely depends on lots of, not just us being able to run our game, but there being lots of other LRP games that lots of people go to and lots of people crew. We are part of a hobby. We're part of a community. So you pay it back. You know, if people give us their time, then we've got to do stuff for the community too. Well, are you saying that that's members of the crew that have said, hey, I'm doing this thing in February. I was wondering if you could make an announcement about it for me and you've been more than happy to help. Yeah, often it's members of crew, uh, but sometimes, and and it's easy to think, oh yeah, okay, yeah, crew, crew are running an event, we'll stuff that. But sometimes it's been people who haven't, haven't either have never crewed for me or haven't crewed for years, because one of the things that's interesting about us, about us as a community, and it goes back to what you said there about recipro- reciprocity, about extended families, we see ourselves as a community. I don't. My, my social contract is with my crew, but my community is the whole hobby. So if you're a, f- uh, a fellow event organizer running a small nonprofit game and you want to put your flyers in my, my mail shot, that's fine. It's just not a problem. I'm now going to get deluged with a million flyers for my next mail <laughs> shot. Then I problem. mean, my next question is going to be, have you ever been in a position where you've needed to say no to something like that? No, nope. no, nope, it's never happened. Yeah, I, I suspect most people assumed it was too expensive. <laughs> but but the point mm. is, it's a community, so it doesn't matter. Maybe even that that person that I'm helping isn't crew. You help them because you're helping the community, and by helping the community, what goes around will come around. Um, and that I think is the difference between us and the exposure dollar relationship, because you know, profound decisions tries. And and some people will say we succeed and some people will say we fail. It doesn't actually matter what your view of profound decisions is. It's an intellectual exercise. And the point is that as an organization, you try who are either nonprofit or profit-based as an organization running live role-playing events, we work together and we try and collaborate with each other and support the community together so that when you need something, I'll help. And when I need something, you'll help. I ask some um, some devil's advocate questions about mm, this. Go for so, it. So community is a wonderful word. I like it a lot. Um, but I've also been talking to some people about it, saying that it's a, it's a lie that we're a community for a number of different reasons. Um, and so I was going to try and come up with some things that being a community doesn't mean in order to get to the heart of what being a volunteer and these community advantages uh, do and don't mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally makes sense. Yes. So Let's start with an easy one. Um, As a volunteer, can I have some extra XP, please? No. Why not? No, uh, categorically not. Uh, For for, uh, some technical reasons and for some real reasons. The technical reason is that the computer system literally calculates your XP based on the number of events you attended. So you just backdate when I started, right? You're right. No, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Technically, could be solved. No, you can't. We have a really easy way that we could pay you. Um, We could give you XP. We could give you in-character currency we could give you lammies or ribbons profound decisions has literally a a kind of inviolate line that we won't cross which is we won't reward you in-game 
for the things that you do out of game because we think when once you do that you breach the barrier between in character and out of character in a way that is damaging to the game for everybody mm-hmm. so we would never reward you in that way uh, partly because we don't think that, that that actually builds on the idea of community and partly because it, we think it would be damaging to the game I'm inclined to agree. But as a volunteer, I mean, I'm walking around backstage a lot of the time. I've got a little bit more access to the plot writers. I can sort of say, hey, I'm planning on this thing in character. And I can use some back channels to get a little bit ahead of anyone who's not a volunteer, right? You could try that. I don't think it'll work very well. (laughs) Uh, No. Yeah. For a start, everyone's far too busy. But yeah. Yes, they are. We're, We're pretty... We're not as guarded as we could be, but we're pretty guarded against that sort of stuff. We basically, the game is our baby and there's a purity to it. And we don't want to soil the purity by giving you IC money or IC plot or IC whatever. Uh, We want you to achieve those things in character. So, yeah, we don't, we, we won't, yeah, we won't. That's not part of our social contract. There are games where it is part of the social contract. And I don't want to criticise their philosophy, but I do want to criticise their economics, which sounds weird. Let me give you an example. Supposing you came to me and said, Matt, you haven't got enough monsters. What you need to do is you need to pay everyone two rings for an hour's monstering or three rings for an hour's monstering or four rings or whatever. And maybe we could do that. Maybe we could try that as an experiment. Whenever I've seen it attempted, the amount of money that you get paid in in character money that you get for your out of character time is always trivial. And so I look at it and I just think, well, it doesn't economically make sense. Uh, if I'm not enjoying monstering, why would I give up two hours of my event that I've paid money to be there, by the way? Let's not forget I'm a player at this point. So I've paid money to be there. And then you're going to give me a small amount of in-character coins to pay for the two hours I've just given up. I I just, and I think it does get volunteers, but I think it's a trap. I think what you're paying them for their time is, is, is not worth it. End up with a different example of the babysitter fallacy. Yes. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not monstering. It's not worth it for 10 rings, 20 rings. It's not worth it. Or if I do, I'm just going to do my job and get out the door. I'm just going to stand at the back and watch and I still get my rings regardless. Yes. Yeah. You want, you want people to monster because monstering is going to be amazing fun and a blast. And they're going to create this epic encounter for the players and they're going to come off it buzzing and the players will come off it buzzing and there's an an energy to it. And everybody's like, that was awesome. What we just did was amazing. We create this amazing scene. That's why you want people to monster because the people who get that energy and get that buzz will be brilliant monsters. This is the, the, the subtle other point. When I say it, I want, crewing to be more enjoyable than playing it's because when crew are having a blast they will be amazing crew i don't just mean they'll work really hard they're they're let's go so again this is a simple example imagine it's an encounter and the monsters come up and they've clearly been briefed they've got three hits and they're going to come at you and attack you until their three hits are gone and they're going to fall over and they're dead it's a pretty flat encounter Now imagine that they're really excited. They're excited about what they're portraying. They've got a concept for the encounter. They're they're involved. They're into it. They're enthusiastic. They're putting time into their role-playing. They're characterizing the monsters. 
They brought their own piece of scenery along with them to chew on. They brought their own piece of scenery on to chew on. Which one of those sounds like the better encounter? Why, well, it's just a no-brainer. It's just a no-brainer. And I think I, I would say that when I've seen a LARPs which do in some way reward their crew for doing it, um, they put a lot of ring fencing around it to say, okay, you're getting some XP for this, but don't let that stop you from being amazing. Um, yeah. And so they do an awful lot to make sure that they don't accidentally kill that sense of trying to bring your all to it at the same time. So any yeah. form of fiscal reward can't be handed out willy-nilly. It needs to be very carefully couched in order to get the most out of your people. Yeah, totally. Have you got more questions about the cool. like, Let's see. Go for um, it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, all right. I am a, a volunteer member of your community. Um, do I get some status out of this? Am I a higher value person who walks tall and can act and as if I am a better member of the community than anyone else? Yeah, you do. I hope you do. Oh, I, I did not expect that answer. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Human beings are very status-driven. And, and it's one of those lies that we tell ourselves, oh, no, no, not me, not me, officer. No, no, no. I'm, I'm far too mentally sophisticated to be succumbed to such uh, primitive uh, inducements. Well, I'm afraid it's very unlikely that you are not affected by status. Status makes us... Basically, when people have status, they're more confident, they're more positive, they're more upbeat, they're more, they're more of the positive hormones circulating in their body, they're less prone to depression. You just, you, you literally just walk three inches taller when you, you are have status and are perceived to have status. And much of that status is an illusion. Uh, much of it is just everyone agrees that person's got status, so <laughs> that person's got status. Um mm. Does being part of my community grant you a degree of status? I really hope so. I'm very, very proud of my red cap. Bingo. You're really proud of it. And I try really hard, as hard as I can, and it's difficult once you've got 350, but I try really hard to make my crew aware of how important they are to me. One of the things that's odd about status is you can share status. Uh, so if you're the event organizer of a large, very successful Fest LRP event, you probably have a degree of status in the hobby. And if you then go around telling the people who crew for you, you're fucking brilliant, I love you, they will be like, oh, this person with status is really likes me and, and, and appreciates what I'm doing. And then that, that gives you a degree of status. You, you know, so state of the one of the positive things status does is when we share it and we, we all you know you share the love and then you know one of the things i talk about every time when i pull my crew together after an event and talk to them is say look you did this you made this i didn't make this happen i, I just got you people together in a field you made this event happen two thousand people have gone away happy and that's down to you you own that success you know i try and make them feel like and i and i say to them and i and this is going to sound like bullshit on the podcast. It's never bullshit when I stand up and say it. I, I, people, as you may know, will talk about the bingo, Matt bingo, which is I say the same mm. things after every event. And the only one goes, hey, full house. One of the things I say repeatedly is we have one of the, the what I think is the best event organizing, event running team, bar none in this country, probably in the world, 
in live role playing. I haven't been to the two big German fests, so I can't see how it compares to there. We're certainly in the top five. There's so much talent, so much dedication, so much ability, such incredible people. And I say that to them. I get them all together and say, you people are amazing. And I do that because I want them to have the status that their accomplishments merit. 350 people have volunteered to make an amazing event happen. And there should be some status that accrues from that. Everybody should look at those people and go, yeah, they crew for Empire. They're one of the people in the best LRP event running teams in the world. You know what? That does surprise me. Um, mainly based upon some half-heard debates I've heard around the field of some concerns about elitism. Um, and I know that Maelstrom, for example, had a lot of different coloured caps, and the coloured caps seem to have gone away over the years um, because of, as I've heard it, it creating a certain us and them sort of uh, quality to things. To talk around this subject a little bit more, I know that as a nerd, uh, and I think this comes down to the, the the five geek social fallacies, which is a good thing to look up. We tend to be really cautious around social status and social ostracization, and it's a subject I think us as a community find maybe a little bit more difficult than most. Um, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Please continue. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I mean. I think you've hit something that's slightly different. Uh, so you've touched on that, uh, you know, Profound Decisions is so big as a, an event crew, 350 people. You, no one knows everyone who crews for us. That doesn't happen. So everybody's split up into departments, God, Plot, Red Hats, who do all the site. And the Red Hats are called Red Hats because they, they all get given a Red Hat, and it's a mark of pride. It's a mark of your status. Incidentally, it's the same techniques used by army regiments, you know, that you know, it's the same, these same principles you see over and over and over again in the human race going back thousands of years. You know, this is your badge of pride. You're one of us now. You have status. You're in our community. We want you in our community. We respect you in our community. And that uh, the, the crew but community breaks down into sub-communities like the Red Hats who put all the tents up, take all the tents down and do all the associated physical work of putting the event on. Sometimes we play that up. Sometimes we try not to play it up too much because we also want them to feel a wider sense of being part of the whole crew base. We don't want them to be totally in a bunker. And that mm. is really about where it's more about identities and, and where you want their strongest identity to be. And, where, you know, where you it sounds very deliberate when you think of it in these terms but we don't really plan it this hard but but yeah if if we get into a situation I'm surprised if you don't quite frankly i mean you're in the business of social engineering and building yes. interesting social groups so if you're not <laughs> applying that to your crew why not yeah we are but but ultimately my, my point is simply that you want you want people to really identify with the community of people that they're working with. And sometimes you need to think whether that's the 40 people they're putting tents up and down with, or it's the 400 people they're putting the event on with. Uh, but that is very different to, I want everybody who crews for Empire to walk on the ceiling. I want them to be giants in every room they're in. Uh, because they've made an amazing event happen and, and they should feel like that. And I think everybody, and incidentally, 
This is not because I think PD is the best game in the world or whatever. If you're running a, if you're running your first LRP game that you've ever, first LRP event you've ever run, and you've got thirty players and you've got four crew, then my advice to you is you want your four crew to feel like they walk on the moon when they make your event. You want them to believe in themselves and their ability to make this amazing event happen. You want them to come out of it feeling like they've achieved something incredible because if that's what they think going in and if that's how they feel coming out, you will have made a great event. So that sense of status, which is about a crude accomplishment and about the belief that you've done something great, yeah, that should be part of, of volunteering. Apps are 100% and that should be true of PD, or in my opinion, it should be true of any LRP game you're creating. Nope, I, I am in agreement with the words that you are saying. We're supposed to try and disagree. Well, maybe not. Sorry, so sorry. Uh, yeah, no, um, it's, it's, it's well, an uh, interesting question. It's just a really interesting question. There is a dark side to it, which there is. every now and then you hear people going, oh, those goddamn players, aren't they stupid and ruining everything? This would be a great game if there weren't players here. And yeah. mm. Elitism is the dark side of status, and us and themism is the dark side of any status. And you have to be really careful for that. You want all the positives and none of the negatives. You know, any time you hear that language, and we've all, every person who's been running LARP events for a few years has heard that language. And sometimes it's come out of their own mouths because, you know, the shit's hit the fan, everything's gone wrong, and you're cursing everybody and everyone. Uh, so we've all made those mistakes i think at some point and absolutely elitism the sense that this crew uh is won't let people who aren't their friends join or won't let people who are new to larp join that event crew or whatever there's there's a dark side to elitism that you need to be really careful about and absolutely us and them you know crew and players that is a really pernicious really negative thing um and and you certainly don't want that side of status you really don't but then i think mm -hmm. Go on. i think a bit comes down to picking your crew uh i think great people who have status use their status to inspire people around them not to look down on the people around them and so if you try and pick the right crew you will pick people who will feel great about what they're doing and want to make everybody they interact with feel great. If you pick the wrong people, they'll feel great about what they're doing and they'll want to make everybody else around them feel small so that they can feel big in comparison. So yeah, pick the right crew. But but you're right, status can be a negative, without a doubt. Um, I think you just touched upon what is the, the third um, question of what a, a volunteer-run game might afford you. Um, and again, this is a devil's advocate -y question, but it's that idea of inviting your friends, which is, if I am a member of your crew, if I am therefore a member of your community, am I therefore entitled to be your friend? <laughs> do you have to be nice to me at parties? Do you have to put up with me talking about boring stuff? Uh, where is that line drawn? Yeah, that's an interesting question. That is a really interesting question. If you crew for me, I owe you a degree of my time. 
I'm trying to think of a good example where this has come up recently, but somebody, you know, I've done something for someone and they've been like, oh, thanks. You know, that's amazing. And I'm like, no, no, stop. You crew for me. You give me two weeks of your life a year. You know, you don't need to be grateful if I've, if I've written a reference for you that took me an hour. It's like, I, I, you know, when I write references for my crew, I consider it an honour and a privilege to be in a position to write that reference. And I, I, I genuinely, I hate doing it because, no, you know, nobody likes writing references. But I absolutely try to approach it from the mindset of this is an important opportunity for me personally to pay back to this person for all the time this person's put into my game. So I absolutely owe you my time and I owe you my consideration. I don't owe you my friendship. Quite close-knit person. You know, I don't make friends easily. I used to when I was a kid, but these days I'm much more, I'm, I'm less, more introverted than I was. You absolutely are, are due my respect and my you know i should treat you with cordiality and professionalism and respect should never ask me to do something that you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself yeah but you're not my friend unless i like you and and, and i'm friendly towards you I, I don't you're not buying my friendship and i hope i've never deceived anyone about that i don't know whether i don't have think you have necessarily um, but i do no. think it's a um Something that comes up a lot when people are getting used to the idea of community is conflating those two things. I know I've conflated it in the past and been butthurt when someone has not really wanted to give me the time of day and I felt entitled to it. Um, I'm an older and wiser person than that now. And I think it's at the heart, because we sort of veered into this idea of what is a community, of yeah. where some people come out of... Um, blarp going well it's not a community after all that's a whole load of bollocks and i think it is a conflation of these two concepts of what do i owe a, uh, a member of my community whereas what do i owe a friend yeah it's really interesting i mean i think friends are a fascinating thing what do i mean by that i I think we'd have to spend another hour defining <laughs> the nature of friendship and the social contract of friendship let me give you a simple example i don't get on that well with my mum okay you know we get on all right we get on perfectly well but i don't I, I i'm not like you know some people be like oh, i have a great relationship with my mom or my dad we're just like best friends and we're always you know me and my mum can't generally spend more than five minutes without me wanting to throttle her it's just like we just don't see eye to eye and and what have you but my mum lived on her own. She was getting elderly. It's like I moved her in with me into my house so that I could look after her because she's part of my family and I owe her. <laughs> you know, she spent 20 years raising me from a kid. So I, I owe the woman. That's just a given that I would take a bullet for her. I would, you know, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my mum, even though I don't particularly like her. <laughs> But but she's family. She is in the tightest community pool I can define. She is she's in my she's in my circle of four people that I'd take a bullet for. That's it. There's four of them. Those people I would I'd just jump in front of it. Wouldn't I? Wouldn't even think about it. Then I go to my circle of friends, and I've got like half a dozen, a dozen friends. And weirdly, I don't look at them as people I would particularly do something for. Then the nature of friendship to me is very contractual in that friendship is 
I really enjoy your company and I hope that you really enjoy mine. I've got friends up in Glasgow. I genuinely relish the opportunity to drive up there and spend two or three hours in their company because they're just great people and I really enjoy their company. But I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't think that our friendship gives us anything to, to transact. I wouldn't be like, Oh, I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't assume that that relationship gave me a right to anything in the way that family, that I, I, I think family has a relationship and the way in which I think my crew family has a relationship. You know, my crew have more rights to my time, to my professional courtesy, uh, to whatever skills and support that I can give them because they're part of a community where there is a contractual sense that we're in this together. We're, we're in this community together. Whereas friendship, I think, is, is, is different. I think it, yeah. Puzzling thought and a bit of a mm. weird one at that. It is, and it is. To, to pair, peel it away from you, I mean, certainly it's a case that I imagine that there's a lot of friendship overlap in the different volunteer areas of yeah. profound decision as well. There kind of has to be in order for those things to function. Um, and I don't know how to peel those apart entirely, but it certainly is something that interests me. Absolutely. There's got to be that overlap. Um, that, that Because part of the reason that you that we all get involved in LARP is because we enjoy the social side of spending time with, with, with people whose company we enjoy. And my definition of people whose company we enjoy is the word friend. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of friends on the crew. They're not bestest buddies, but they're people who I genuinely enjoy their company, enjoy their time, enjoy socializing with them, enjoy chatting with them. So, yeah, uh, you know, at a very loose level, many of them are friends. To peel it back to the point, that is not the same thing as being a community member, and it is not a part of the, the volunteer contract, as it were. No, because it is possible to crew for me and for me to not like you as an individual or not enjoy your company. Uh, and just, you know, the, with the best one in the world, 350 crew, I don't love them all as people. They're not all like a brother to me. And if I were to claim that, I'd just be preposterous. But every one of them is due my time. Every one of them is due my courtesy. Every one of them is part of my community. And I would go the same distance for all of them. When people ask me for a reference, I don't weigh up, mm, do I like you? Do I not like you? So on my crew, it's like, yes. The answer is, Yes. It's not, did you crew for me once? Did you crew for me 20 times? If you've crewed for me, you want a reference? The answer is yes. Even if I don't like you, I will find the most positive things I can think about to say about you in that reference. And I will do that grateful for the help that you have given me in the past and grateful for the chance to be able to pay that back. If my best friend, you know, I socialize with in Preston, but he's never really done anything for me other than in I enjoy his company. He said, "Oh, Matt, I want you to write a reference." I'd be like, "Seriously? Well, what? Am I really the best person for this job?" Yeah, I wouldn't be sad. There going, oh, I really relish the opportunity to pay you back for all the times we'd spent chatting and socialising. I'd be like, mm, "There'd be no been as good for you as it was for me." To be honest, yeah. So yeah, exactly. So I, I do think friendship is is a really important part of the community, and it's part of the alchemy that makes events work. But it isn't part of the social contract that you go. Well, I've crewed for you, 
Therefore, you're now my friend. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that would be an odd, an odd thing. Um, a case that as a, a LARP crew get tighter, then they have to move beyond the bounds of friendship. I mean, generally, a bunch of buddies starts out doing things together, um, but ultimately, it has to get a little bit more professional than that in order to function. Yeah, they do. Uh, and mm. equally, I've crewed for people whom I don't always like. As, as individual people. But I thought, you're putting a great event on. I might get something out of this, or I'll be able to participate in putting this great event on, or you've crewed for me in the past, or whatever, or whatever. And I've gone, yeah. And I've gone there and crewed and given it my all and had a great time because, yeah, it's it's a different thing, I think. Thank you, Tony. I, I suggest, I think we've come to a natural break there. So let's uh, let's wrap it up. I think it's been really interesting. I hope people have enjoyed listening. Thanks to my guest, Tony Porteous. Well, thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. We've got a few more of these left, so I'll try and get another one edited and released soon. 